0: On June eighteenth, 1919, a tall, thin man with jet black hair, 29 years old, and wearing, according to some accounts, a borrowed suit, presented himself at the elite Hotel Crillon on the Place de la Concorde. The hotel was home to the U.S. delegation at the Paris Peace Conference. The man managed, somehow, to convince the hotel to deliver a letter and petition to Woodrow Wilson's closest adviser, Colonel House. We know that the letter reached House's office because House's archives include a copy of a note acknowledging receipt. We know the contents of the petition because copies circulated in Paris. It is titled Demands of the Annamite People and begins, quote, Since the victory of the Allies, all subjects are frantic with hope at the prospect of an era of right and justice, which should begin for them by virtue of the formal and solemn engagements made before the whole world by the various powers of the Entente in the struggle of civilization against barbarism. The petition goes on to reference the principle of self-determination as outlined in the 14 points. It calls for basic rights and liberties for the Anamite people and autonomy in internal affairs. The letter is signed by Wen I. Kwok, the man who made the delivery to the Hotel Crayon. The name is a pseudonym that translates to Wen who loves his country. I would not be surprised if you have never heard of the Anamites or of Wen I Quoc both became better known by different names in the future. You are probably more familiar with the Annamites as the Vietnamese and Wen I Quoc as Ho Chi Minh. This is the year that was, 1919. This is the podcast where we tell the story of history one year at a time. I'm your host, Elizabeth Lunday. Thank you so much for listening. This episode is the last in a group focusing on colonies and imperialism. It's going to be a sort of wrap up that jumps from one corner of the globe to another, but it's all part of the big picture. I wanted to begin with the story of Ho Chi Minh at the Paris Peace Conference because it illustrates how the concept of self-determination fired the passions of oppressed nations around the globe. The Annamite Petition said that its people were, quote, frantic with hope at the prospect of an era of right and justice. Another declaration that we're going to discuss called self-determination, quote, the great tide of our age. We talked about optimism in our very first episode, and this was one of the greatest sources of optimism in 1919. People believed after years, even centuries of oppression, independence was not only possible, but promised. Woodrow Wilson promised people their freedom. The crazy thing is that Wilson was totally blindsided by this reaction to the 14 points. It wasn't at all what he had intended. He meant the principle to apply only to a handful of countries in Europe. Self-determination was for the Czechs and the Poles, not the, what was it again, the Annamites? Wilson was shocked and kind of annoyed that so many people thought the principle was supposed to apply to them. When I Kwok, to use the alias he preferred in 1919, was born in 1890, three years after his homeland became a French colony. French Indochina included today's Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. Vietnam was frequently referred to as Nam. The French ruled with an iron fist. The native population had no civil liberties, and education was reserved for a tiny minority. Wen I Kwok had been fortunate to go to school through age 17, but he saw few opportunities at home. He left Vietnam in 1911 as a cook's helper aboard a French vessel and traveled the world. He lived in Brooklyn and later London. According to some accounts, he was tutored in the art of French pastry under the famous chef Auguste Escoffier, but this most likely is a myth. Finally, he landed in Paris and got a job at the Ritz as a busboy. In Paris, Kwok joined a group of Vietnamese nationalists. The peace conference seemed the perfect opportunity for them to call for greater autonomy, if not full independence, for Vietnam. After all, point five of the 14 points was very clear about colonies. It required the Allies to make, quote, a free, open-minded, and absolutely impartial adjustment of all colonial claims, based upon a strict observance of the principle that in determining all such questions of sovereignty, the interests of the populations concerned must have equal weight with the equitable government whose title is to be determined. Easy peasy, right? Right. So why did the Allies ignore the Vietnamese position? First, as far as the Allies were concerned, the Vietnamese had no standing to make a claim. The rule stated that only official representatives of recognized governments could be received by the conference. Vietnam, a colony of France, had no recognized government. Second, the Allies would have said they had bigger fish to fry than to worry about some remote corner of the globe they had never heard of. On June 18th, the date Kwok delivered the letter, Wilson was facing a Senate revolt, the Italian government was on the verge of collapse, Germany was considering refusing to sign the Treaty of Versailles, and Clemenceau was talking to French generals about the possibility of marching on Berlin. It is probable that the aide who signed the letter to Kwok never even showed the petition to his boss, Colonel House. Wilson certainly never received the message. Some historians have suggested that if Wilson or someone, anyone, within the Allies had paid attention to Ho Chi Minh, the future could have been different. Ho Chi Minh might have adopted a pro-Western stance. Perhaps the Vietnam War could have been avoided. This... Seems unlikely to me, even if America had taken up the cause of the Annamites, the French would have been infuriated by outside interference in what they considered their internal affairs. Anam was as much a French territory as Marseille or Lyon. Did the French tell the Americans what to do in Alabama? When the West proved unresponsive, Kwok discovered that the communists were far more sympathetic. In 1923, he moved to Moscow. And so it goes. It seemed to the Vietnamese, as it might seem to us, that the allies were incredibly inconsistent in their application of the 14 points. After all, Poland was granted its independence. Didn't Vietnam have just as much of a valid claim as Poland? Having seen in the last few weeks how the Western powers treated the claims of Ireland, India, and Turkey, I think you know the answer to this question. Only some people in some nations were considered entitled to or even capable of independence. The thing was that the Poles were civilized people. I mean, not to British standards, of course, but you wouldn't expect that. Anyway, the Poles were technically civilized and the Vietnamese weren't, according to colonial thinking. And so it was the duty of Western people to civilize them. It was their responsibility. The West served in loco parentis for the rest of the world, whether the rest of the world liked it or not. In fact, it was expected that the uncivilized would resist civilization in the way that a two-year-old resists table manners. There's this awful awful poem by Rudyard Kipling, whom we talked about briefly in a previous episode called The White Man's Burden. It's worth reading if you can control your gag reflex. And I've put a link up on the website. It describes the natives of non-Western lands as, quote, sullen peoples who are, quote, half devil and half child. The colonizers felt really noble about taking on the responsibility of civilizing the world and really pretty sorry for themselves because obviously no one else could do it. The self-pity runs through the white man's burden. One part reads, Take up the white man's burden and reap his old reward, the blame of those ye better, the hate of those you guard. Look, man, oppressing people on the other side of the world for power and profit is really hard. And everyone's mad at you all the time. Look, I could blather on about colonial prejudices all day, but my point is this they were prejudices. Whatever they told themselves, the real reason Poland was allowed independence was that the Poles were white, they were European. Therefore, they were worthy of freedom and considered capable of self-government. The Vietnamese were not white. Therefore, they were inferior. They weren't capable of governing themselves and didn't deserve independence. There was a lot of arm waving and carrying on. But what it came down to was this raw, unfiltered racism. Wilson et al. had to deal with colonies from day one of the peace conference because decisions needed to be made about colonies once controlled by Germany and the Ottoman Empire, as we discussed last week. What to do? The various colonies and territories politely suggested that they should be allowed to govern themselves. But everyone just sort of chuckled and ignored them. The 14 points said that, quote, the interests of the populations concerned must be considered, but that didn't require anyone to actually talk to the populations concerned. Heavens no, why would you do that? However, the former colonies couldn't just be handed over to the Allies wholesale. The 14 points had made such a production of not carving up losing nations like leftovers. The diplomats had to come up with some way of divvying up the spoils without looking like they were doing so. You'll recall from last week how awkward it was when word leaked out that Britain had been conspiring to divide the Ottoman territories. This began a period of particularly intense colonial arm-waving. An argument developed that I will present in its final form. It went like this. Among those countries that had been ruled by the defeated empires, there was a sliding scale of capability. Some were almost but not quite ready to govern themselves. Others might need more help and supervision. Still others might never be able to look after themselves, poor souls. And it was the duty of civilized people to take them in hand as if they were Kipling's sullen demon children, or I don't know, women. These countries would therefore not be colonies, but rather mandates The British and Americans thought the word had a nice benevolent ring to it. It utterly baffled non-English speakers and a bewildered Chinese delegate was heard to ask, who is mandatory? The Allies created three categories of mandates along a sliding scale from A, mandates close to self-government, to B, mandates that needed more help getting their affairs in order, and finally C, mandates that needed to be ruled entirely by the governing territory. Let's now stop waving our arms and look at the reality of the situation. All Class A mandates were, in fact, territories controlled by the former Ottoman Empire. We talked about them last week. All Class B mandates were former German colonies in western Central Africa, including today's nations of Rwanda, Burundi, Tanzania, Cameroon, and Togo. The British and French had decided on the division of these territories back during the war. No one asked the Class B mandates if this is what they wanted, despite the fact numerous African representatives were in Paris for the first Pan-African Congress. I'm going to talk more about the Pan-African Congress in a future episode. All Class C mandates were former German colonies in Southwest Africa and the Pacific Islands, including today's New Guinea, Western Samoa, and Namibia. These territories were effectively annexed by Australia, New Zealand, Japan, and South Africa. Again, no one asked the Pacific Islanders what they wanted, and it seems unlikely anyone would have listened if they had. For a sense of how the Allies viewed natives of the region— Clemenceau enjoyed referring to the prime ministers of Australia and New Zealand as the cannibals, as in, let's ask the cannibals what their opinion is. The two men in question were white. They had immigrated from London and Ireland, respectively, and they apparently enjoyed the joke. That left one Asian colony to sort out, Shandong in China. Let's take a look at China in 1919. The country was really struggling. One government controlled the north, the other the south. And while the peace conference was going on in Paris, another conference was underway in Shanghai to reconcile the two. Through the 18th century, China had been one of the most powerful countries in the world, but pressure from Western empires combined with internal strains weakened China in the 19th century. European countries' intent on trade established foreign enclaves within Chinese territory. These were basically colonies, although that's not what they were called. A Western power would seize a city and its surrounding land, impose laws and taxes, and control trade in and out of the region. Hong Kong was one of the most famous of these Western-occupied cities. It remained in British control until 1997. And as I record this in November of 2019, Hong Kong is experiencing massive protests that can be traced directly back to its colonial history. In the scramble for territory, Germany had taken over Shandong, a province south of Beijing. Now, China hated these colonies, and you can see why. They were insults to Chinese sovereignty. The primary goal of China at the peace conference was to reclaim Shandong, and the Chinese had good reason to think they would achieve this goal, thanks to Woodrow Wilson. Wilson was a hero in China, the man who would give China back a measure of self-respect. If Shandong had still been in German hands, there would have been no problem. But Shandong was no longer under German control. In the autumn of 1914, Shandong had been seized by Japan. So let's take a look at Japan. The country had grown in power and influence massively over a few very short years. Between 1885 and 1920, Japan industrialized at a bewildering pace, increasing its gross domestic product by three times and its mining and manufacturing sector by six times. The country flexed its imperial muscles by conquering Taiwan in 1895, humiliating Russia in 1905, and seizing Korea in 1910. When the Great War began, Japan captured Shandong from the Germans. Japanese leaders were understandably proud of their achievements, but they were frustrated by the response from the Allies. Nothing Japan did ever seemed to be enough. Westerners treated them with disdain, if not disgust. Racism was never far from the surface. It was ridiculous. Japan was now a major world power, and Japan deserved respect. So the Japanese arrived in Paris with two main goals. One, retain Shandong. Two, insert a racial equality clause in the League of Nations covenant. What the Japanese wanted was a statement within the covenant that would read as follows, quote, The equality of nations being a basic principle of the League of Nations, the high contracting parties agree to accord as soon as possible to all alien nationals of states, members of the League, equal and just treatment in every respect, making no distinction either in law or in fact on account of their race or nationality. Well, that seems harmless. On February 13th, the Japanese representatives proposed this amendment at the League of Nations Commission meeting. People lost their minds. The Prime Minister of Australia, Billy Hughes, came out swinging. He was a promoter of the white Australia policy that aimed to forbid Asians from immigrating to the country. He stated that, quote, 95 out of 100 Australians rejected the very idea of equality, which is an appalling statement, but at least honest. Reaction was also strong in the United States. California Senator James Duvall Phelan telegraphed the U.S. delegation in Paris that, quote, Western senators and others will oppose any loophole by which Oriental people will possess equality with the white race in the United States. Newspaper editorial pages, especially on the West Coast, were filled with hand that the Racial Equality Clause would force the U.S. to reverse a 1917 law restricting immigration from Asia, as well as various state laws limiting the ownership of property. At this time, California and several other states prohibited Chinese and Japanese immigrants from owning land. Wilson didn't speak openly against the racial equality clause, but he didn't defend it either. Wilson was a Virginian. He segregated the federal government when he took office. He needed the support of Southern Democrats who saw any call for racial equality as threatening Jim Crow. He didn't need the opposition of Western Republicans who were riding a wave of hysteria about Asian immigration, the so-called yellow peril. April 11th was the critical day for the racial equality clause. It was the final session of the committee drafting the League of Nations Covenant, and they had to finish that day. Other matters had dragged out discussion and delayed debate on the clause. So it was late by the time the Japanese moved for the clause to be added to the covenant. Several delegates spoke in favor, including the Greek, Czech, and French representatives. The British delegate, looking uncomfortable, said simply that he couldn't support it and then shut up. It was the turn of Wilson, the chair of the committee. He urged the Japanese to withdraw their clause without a vote. He told them they were going about this whole thing the wrong way. It was a mistake, he said, to make too much of a fuss about racial prejudice. Everyone knew the League was based on the equality of nations. They didn't need to spell it out. Let's be reasonable here. But even after this bit of white-splaining by Wilson, the Japanese insisted on a vote. So the commission voted the Racial Equality Clause received 11 out of 19 votes, a majority. Yay! But then Wilson announced that because there were strong objections to the vote, it would not carry. A unanimous vote would be required. Lacking that, the clause was thrown out. What? There was nothing in the rules about requiring unanimous votes for strongly felt issues. There was certainly nothing about requiring unanimous votes After the fact, the French and the Japanese sputtered objections. Wilson proceeded serenely to the next matter on the agenda. The entire conference was thrown into turmoil by this turn of events. The Japanese were livid and ready to walk. They threatened to refuse to sign the Treaty of Versailles. This was a crisis, for the Japanese not to sign the treaty would have been awkward and humiliating for the rest of the Allies, a clear sign to the world that the global powers were not in agreement. And the timing was terrible. At this exact moment, the Italians were also threatening not to sign. We're going to talk more about them in a minute. If two of the five biggest powers walked out of the treaty discussions, the legitimacy of the entire process would be in question. But the Japanese had one more card to play, Shandong. Japan let it be known that if the Allies granted them control of the province, they would sign the treaty even without the racial equality clause. Wilson had spent the entire war denouncing this sort of wheeling and dealing. He deplored tit-for-tat diplomacy as one of the main causes of the Great War. The whole purpose of the 14 points had been to establish principles around which to base international agreements. To trade a colony for a treaty signature was against everything he stood for. But now Wilson felt he had no choice but to accept the deal. There was a lot of hand-wringing and arguing and smoking of cigarettes. Diplomats wrote embittered memos and had whispered arguments in hallways, and sometimes the arguments got well above whispering level. Wilson was cranky, and his health seemed precarious. He was still recovering from whatever illness had struck him that spring, a cold or a stroke or the flu. But at the end of the day, with no other way for the Allies to retrieve their position, Wilson told the Japanese they could keep Shandong. The Japanese agreed to sign the Treaty of Versailles. The Chinese delegation was devastated. So, too, when the news reached back home were the Chinese people. They had trusted Wilson. They had believed in the 14 points. Now they felt nothing but rage and betrayal. They were losing Shandong to their rival Japan in a bit of horse trading that did the Chinese no good at all. Frustrations erupted on May 4, 1919. Some 4,000 protesters crowded in Tiananmen Square shouting, Don't sign the Treaty of Versailles! Demonstrations and strikes spread across the country. This became known as the May 4th movement. It marked the rejection of Western liberalism among Chinese intellectuals. The West had failed them. The Allies had proven themselves faithless and selfish. Many Chinese looked for new models and new supporters. It is no coincidence that the Communist Party of China was founded in 1921. The peace conference also left lasting resentment in Japan. Yes, Japan had won Shandong, but the country was humiliated by its treatment. The Japanese had played the Western game according to Western rules. And for what? In the end, it wasn't cooperation over the war or participation in the peace conference that had secured Shandong. Many Japanese nationalists concluded, why bother? What good had the West ever done Japan? Relationships soured and bitterness grew. As for the American delegation at the peace conference, many were disgusted with the deal. Several junior members resigned. And when Wilson returned home to promote the League of Nations, everywhere he went, the people and the press asked him about Shandong. It's not that the American people particularly cared about the fate of this Chinese colony, but they recognized hypocrisy when they saw it. So over and over they asked, why had Wilson given the Japanese Shandong? How could he defend the decision? Wilson couldn't. He couldn't defend it. It was a betrayal of the 14 points, and everyone knew it. And here we have yet another reason Wilson failed to convince the American people to back the League of Nations. Let's look at one more event in Asia, this time in Korea. After a long and remarkable history, Korea struggled in the 19th century under pressure from Western powers to open trade. Then Japan forcibly annexed Korea in 1910. Japanese rule was harsh. To give you an indication, this era is sometimes known in Korea as the military police reign era. When news of the 14 points reached Korea, it kindled hope that Korean independence would be supported by the Western powers. Several prominent Koreans wanted to plead their case in Paris, but their visas were denied by the Japanese. So three independence activists who lived outside of Korea declared themselves representative of the Korean YMCA and traveled to France. They managed to arrange a meeting with a minor American diplomat and, like Wen I kwok handed him documents outlining Korean goals. They never received a response. Back in Korea, a group of activists convened in Seoul on March 1st. They declared Korean independence, denounced Japanese discrimination, and stated, quote, "...inasmuch as this proclamation originates from our 5,000-year history." Inasmuch as as it springs from the loyalty of 20 million people, inasmuch as as it affirms our yearning for the advancement of everlasting liberty, inasmuch as it expresses our desire to take part in the global reform rooted in human conscience, it is the solemn will of heaven, the great tide of our age, and a just act necessary for the coexistence of all humankind." Therefore, no power in the world can obstruct or suppress it. Thousands of protesters began a march through Seoul. This was followed over the next days and weeks by more demonstrations around the country. Ultimately, some two million Koreans participated in more than fifteen hundred demonstrations. The Japanese were furious and brought in the military to put down the protests. Roughly 7,500 people were killed, nearly 16,000 were wounded, and 46,000 were arrested. The March 1st movement was a catalyst for the Korean independence movement. However, Koreans, like so many others, were left frustrated by the Western nations. The communists would be quick to take advantage of this resentment. The Korean communist movement was established in 1922. A line goes directly from the March 1st movement to Kim Jong-un. And so it goes. I want to do a little zipping around the world before I focus in on one last story. First, last week, we talked about the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. What I couldn't figure out how to work into that episode were two other conflicts in that general corner of the world in Egypt and Afghanistan. So let's touch on them very quickly. First, Egypt was technically part of the Ottoman Empire in 1914, but it had been under British influence for years. Control of the Suez Canal was essential to British strategy for India. This was annoying enough for the Egyptians, but the situation worsened during the war as the British conscripted one and a half million Egyptians in forced labor corps and requisitioned crops and animals for the army. The situation shifted when, guess what, the 14 points were announced. Like the Vietnamese and the Chinese and the Koreans, Egyptians thought it actually applied to them. Independence activists demanded the British High Commissioner end the Protectorate in Egypt. At the same time, they began organizing protests, attracting massive crowds at demonstrations. The British freaked out, especially because as in India, the protests crossed the religious divide. Seeing Christians and Muslims protesting together was scary stuff. So the British cracked down and hundreds of Egyptians were killed. The situation finally simmered down in December 1919 when Lloyd George established a commission to research the Egypt question and propose a settlement. In 1922, London forced a compromise in which Britain declared Egypt fully independent and sovereign, but actually kept several key aspects of Egyptian foreign relations in British hands. The British didn't leave Egypt entirely until after World War II then there was Afghanistan. Positioned as it is between India and Russia, the country had been a focus of British attention for years. Since 1880, Britain had basically pulled the strings in Afghanistan through various puppet rulers. But in 1919, a new ruler had taken over the country, one Amir Amanullah Khan, and he decided he had had enough of being a British puppet. He saw his chance in April 1919, and if that date sounds familiar, yes, it was right after the Amritsar massacre. Amanullah reasoned that unrest in India created an opportunity to catch the British while they were distracted. So in early May 1919, Afghan troops attacked across the Khyber Pass. Among those units called to counter the invasion was one under the command of Brigadier General Reginald Dyer whom we last saw ordering his soldiers to shoot into an unarmed crowd in Amritsar. Ultimately, the Afghans were no match for the British army. By August, it was all over. But in a weird way, the Afghans could count this as a victory. The British agreed to stop dictating Afghan national policy, allowing the country to emerge as a fully sovereign state. These two disputes were fairly localized, conflicts that tend to be forgotten in the wider world. But notice the timing. Both Egypt and Afghanistan blew up in the spring of 1919, right after Amritsar. Right as Iraq, Palestine, Syria, and Turkey were also exploding. While mass protests were underway in China and Korea, while the Irish Civil War was heating up, while the Reds were fighting the Whites in Russia, Hungary was getting invaded by, like, everyone, and Germany was fearing a Bolshevik uprising. I keep telling you guys, everything happens at exactly the same time. I want to tell one last story today about colonies and territories and imperial ambitions. Let's talk about Italy. I mentioned last week how, when the Great War began, Italy was actually allied with Germany and Austria-Hungary, but the Italians declined to enter the conflict right away. Instead, they went to each side and asked what they would get in return for their cooperation. The Allies offered a better deal, so the Italians joined the fight against the Central Powers. The Allies' deal with Italy was laid out in the Treaty of London, a secret agreement signed by Italy, France, and Britain in 1915. The treaty handed Italy large portions of Austria-Hungarian territory in the Alps, as well as lands across the Adriatic Sea from the Italian peninsula, including portions of today's Slovenia, Croatia, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Montenegro, and Albania. Italy also wanted a portion of Turkey, as we discussed last week. Woodrow Wilson hated the Treaty of London. He thought it was exactly the kind of diplomacy that leads to future wars. And when the Paris Peace Conference began, he urged Clemenceau, Lloyd George, and the Italian Prime Minister Vittorio Orlando to disregard the treaty. But the Italians dug in their heels. They wanted what they were promised. The war had severely disrupted the Italian economy and society, exposing deep fault lines in the relatively young nation. Remember, Italy had only become an independent, unified state in 1871. When the peace conference began, the other allied leaders didn't appreciate how much pressure the Italians were under at home. Orlando knew his job was on the line. Italy was the poorest of the great powers, and by 1919, it was in debt to the tune of $3.5 billion. Inflation was rampant. More than half a million Italians had died in the Great War, and about a million more had been wounded. The Spanish flu had also been particularly devastating in Italy, killing nearly 500,000. The Italians felt they were owed for their sacrifices. Italy's attention gradually focused on the fate of a little port called Fiume. Located about 100 miles across the Adriatic from Venice, the town had belonged to Hungary. The population had a typically European mix of ethnicities, including Hungarians, Italians, and Croats. Fiume had no particular historic or economic significance. It had been under Roman and later Italian rule at various points through the preceding two millennia, but so had lots of places. Nevertheless, Italians decided Fiume would be the hill they were prepared to die on. Well, Woodrow Wilson was no stranger to dying on Random Hills as a matter of principle. As far as he was concerned, Fiume belonged to Yugoslavia. Moving on. But the Italians refused to move on. They argued and stalled and threatened to bring the entire peace conference to a halt. From the Allied point of view, Italy's fixation on Fiume couldn't have come at a worse time. At the exact same moment, Japan was forcing the issue of Shandong and threatening to not sign the treaty. But from the Italian point of view, now was the perfect time to emphasize Wilson's hypocrisy and inconsistency. Wilson was clearly willing to cut deals. He was cutting a deal with Japan at that very instant. So why was the American president so insistent on principle when dealing with Italy's claims? The Italian foreign minister lashed out, telling Lloyd George and Clemenceau, quote, Now President Wilson, after ignoring and violating his own 14 points, wants to restore their virginity by applying them vigorously where they refer to Italy. Matters came to a head on April 20th. It was Easter Sunday and the Italians had demanded an emergency meeting. Tensions rose so high that Orlando burst into tears and started sobbing into his hands. Diplomats just don't do that. Clemenceau looked on coldly. The British were horrified. One British diplomat later said if his young son had committed such a disgraceful display of emotion, he would have been spanked. Only Wilson went over and awkwardly patted the Italian's shoulder, but Wilson wouldn't budge on Fiume. So on April 24th, Orlando walked away from the peace conference and caught a train home to Rome. The Italian people had adored Woodrow Wilson. Remember how John Dos Passos said in Italy he had seen women like candles in front of Wilson's photo as if he were a saint. Now all of the pictures were ripped down. The Cafe Wilson in Turin was hastily renamed. Protesters filled the streets shouting down with Wilson. This was all very distressing but ultimately the Allies did have the upper hand. The British and French announced they no longer felt any obligation to respect the Treaty of London. The United States put a desperately needed loan on hold. So on May 5th, the Italian delegates sheepishly returned and agreed in principle to give up Fiume. Fury erupted back in Italy. Prime Minister Orlando was forced from office on June 19th. And it was then that Gabriele D'Annunzio began really to make a nuisance of himself. I am delighted to introduce to you one of the most colorful figures we will meet in this podcast Gabriele D'Annunzio, Italian poet, journalist, soldier, and politician. D'Annunzio was the goth rock star of -of turn-of-the-century Italy. He achieved fame as a poet in the decadent movement, which was exactly what it sounds like, an artistic movement that emphasized self-indulgence and sensuality. D'Annunzio cultivated a reputation as a sex-drenched, cocaine-fueled bad boy with a sinister edge. He supposedly practiced necromancy. He wasn't particularly attractive, but women found him irresistible, and he slept with everyone from opera singers to actresses, aristocrats to parlor maids. His life was a series of affectations. He wrote his poetry on handmade paper using goose quill pens, and he traveled with his own sheets, insisting hotels change the bedding the moment he arrived. Somehow, between all of his publicity stunts, nude swims on a public beach, nude horseback rides, one sense is a theme, he found time to write numerous novels, plays, and volumes of poetry. Denuncio was also a patriot, and when Italy joined the Great War, he joined the Italian Army. He trained to be a pilot and led numerous daring air raids, most of which were militarily irrelevant but made great newspaper headlines. For example, he commanded nine planes in a 700-mile round-trip flight from Italy over the Alps to Austria, which was really pushing the limits of aviation in 1918. Disappointingly, the point of the campaign was simply to drop propaganda leaflets on Vienna, leaflets that D'Annunzio hadn't bothered to have translated into German, so the Viennese likely found them incomprehensible. But then the whole stunt had been a propaganda exercise. Most of D'Annunzio's life was a propaganda exercise. The war strengthened D'Annunzio's ultra-nationalist views, and he adopted Fiume as the sacred cause of the Italian people. In the summer of 1919, he gave rousing speeches over the absolute necessity of Italian conquest of Fiume, whether the Allies agreed or not. Conflict over the city dragged through the summer, long after the Treaty of Versailles was signed and Wilson went back to the U.S. Finally, in August, plans were announced making Fiume a neutral city under the governance of the League of Nations. The Nationalists were furious, and they demanded that D'Annunzio act. D'Annunzio was rather distracted at the moment. He had a new lover who was taking up a great deal of his attention. But his followers convinced him that now was the time, Fiume was the place, and D'Annunzio was the man. On September 11, 1919, D'Annunzio set out from Italy with about 200 armed troops. The soldiers marched. D'Annunzio drove his bright red Fiat. Along the way, the group picked up fans and grew in number, particularly when a unit of Italian soldiers sent to stop Denunzio instead joined him. By the time the red Fiat drove into Fiume the next day, D'Annunzio had some 2,000 men under his control. The Allied troops occupying the city had the sense to withdraw without a fuss, and D'Annunzio entered the city to a blizzard of flags and cheers. The poet waved to his adoring fans, identified the best hotel in the city, and retired there for a nice long nap. Thus refreshed, he was able to give an impassioned speech from the balcony of the governor's palace. Thus began a 15-month period of absolute insanity in Fiume. Denuncio's governing style was eccentric. He complained every time he was forced to attend meetings, but he adored giving speeches. Buildings in the city were covered with banners and flags, and all of the gardens were stripped down to bare grass since so many flowers were thrown during the parades. The party never stopped in Fiume, and observers reported in shock and horror that priests were ignoring their vows and young women staying out all night. Supposedly, an entire hospital had to be set aside to treat venereal diseases. Other aspects of D'Annunzio's rule of Fiume were less delightful. The poet surrounded himself with a hand-picked elite guard made up of veterans of the Italian special forces. They were known as the Centurions of Death. They wore black shirts and khaki pants tucked into high black boots and marched in stern-faced columns down Fiume's streets. D'Annunzio thought they needed a distinctive salute, so he had them adopt a palm-down, straight-arm gesture that you may have seen before. Meanwhile, D'Annunzio's rhetoric rose to dizzying heights. Fiume, he said, was a sacred city of liberty from which he would lead a campaign to free first Italy and then the rest of the world. He made contacts with almost all of the radical groups we have discussed in this podcast, including the Bolsheviks, Sinn Féin, and Egyptian nationalists. He began to call himself Il Duce. The whole situation was an embarrassment for Italy. The Italians imposed a blockade and ordered Fiume to surrender. D'Annunzio dug in and declared Fiume an independent state, the Italian regency of Carnaro. The economy of the city collapsed since no one was paying attention to such mundane matters as taxes or imports, and muttering began against El Duce. In reply, he stifled dissent, sending out his black-shirted centurions of death to deal out beatings. According to some accounts, he devised a sadistic practice to humiliate his opponents once they were in his custody by forcibly dosing them with massive quantities of castor oil. Castor oil is a highly effective laxative. His enemies were left at least humiliated and sometimes seriously disabled. Finally, in November 1920, Italy and Yugoslavia announced an agreement that settled the borders between their two countries. Fiume was declared a free state under international control. D'Annunzio withdrew into seclusion, only emerging to declare war on Italy, Finally, on Christmas Eve 1920, the Italian Navy opened fire on Fiume. D'Annunzio claimed he would fight it out, but then a shell narrowly missed him, and he quickly negotiated a surrender. Il Duce slunk back to Italy. What then was the outcome of all of this? Italy was left feeling betrayed. Italians had died for the Allies, and for what? The country came out of the war worse off than it began, with its economy a wreck, riots and protests a routine occurrence, and the nation a laughingstock. The outcome of the peace conference became known among Italians using a term Denunzio coined. It was the mutilated victory. Governments came and went trying to find a way to regain control. One close observer of this situation was a journalist, war veteran, and former socialist named Benito Mussolini. In 1919, Mussolini was publishing a newspaper called Il Popolo d'Italia and dipping his toes into politics. His newspaper was a major supporter of Denunzio and his capture of Fiume. Mussolini wrote that Italy had every right to Fiume since Italians needed to assert their superiority and strength through conquest. Mussolini learned a great deal from D'Annunzio's adventures, and he channeled what he had learned into a new political philosophy that he called fascism. Fascism emphasized strength, power, taking what you considered yours. It was ultra-nationalist and violently anti-socialist and anti-communist. It embraced the use of force to achieve political aims. Mussolini built up units of militia squads, some of whom had served in the Centurions of Death under Nannunzio. He dressed these men in black shirts and black boots, just as in Fiume. And when they marched, they raised their arms in the fascist salute. In October 1922, with the current government again tottering, Mussolini's followers decided their time had come. They organized a march on Rome, arriving not with D'Annunzio's 2,000 men, but rather 30,000. Mussolini, incidentally, did not actually march into Rome, but more comfortably took a car. With black shirts parading through the Eternal City, the king of Italy handed the government to Mussolini to forestall civil war. Mussolini's appeal was to Italian pride as much as anything else, pride that had been wounded by the Allies in the humiliating, mutilated victory. One of Mussolini's first major foreign policy achievements was to force Yugoslavia to hand Fiume over to Italy. Mussolini borrowed more than a uniform and a salute from D'Annunzio. His black shirts adopted the brutal methods of D'Annunzio's centurions, including the castor oil torture technique. Beyond that, Mussolini's entire style of public spectacle, the shouted speeches and massive parades, all calculated to whip audiences into a nationalist frenzy, were straight from Denunzio's playbook. They would soon be adopted by an Austrian-born failed artist, just beginning to get headlines for his wildly popular anti-Semitic speeches in Germany. And so it goes. I must tell you about D'Annunzio's last days before we go. He did not, in fact, support Mussolini, but was rather scornful and dismissive of fascism. After all, he had done it all first. D'Annunzio stayed out of politics, holed up in his country estate, and took massive quantities of cocaine. He died on March 1, 1938, apparently of a stroke. I include the qualifier because it was discovered later that his last mistress, a beautiful blonde was actually a Nazi agent who left for Berlin the day he died. People still wonder if she poisoned him. And that's where I'm going to leave it this week. Thank you so much for listening to the year that was. Next week, we're going to shift our focus and begin a series of episodes about events in the United States. We're going to talk about anarchists and communists and mail bombs and wobblies and a very young J. Edgar Hoover. I hope you join me. It's going to be a lot of fun. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode. Check out the website, www.theyearthatwaspodcast.com for photos and maps and some links to Gabriele D'Annunzio's poetry. Join me on Twitter or on the Facebook page for more fun details and discussion. Thanks again for listening. I'm Elizabeth Lunday, and this is The Year That Was.